0: Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 106, Adrian II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Last week, we had a great pope in Nicholas the Great. He was energetic, he was holy, he was active, he stood firm against political pressure. Today's pope is known rather for his humility and at times even maybe for his weakness. Adrian II was of an aristocratic Roman family. His relatives, in fact, had been popes before him, Stephen IV and Sergius II. And at a young age, he was made a subdeacon by Gregory IV and later ordained the cardinal priest of San Marco in 842. Adrian was married before entering church service. His wife's name was Stephania, and he had a daughter. But upon being ordained, Adrian lived apart from his family in order to live out celibacy and to serve the church, as was the practice at the time for those who were married who entered into the clerical state. The papal biographer Horace Mann gives us a couple details about Adrian's reputation for humility and piety in his biography of him, and one story in particular I want to share, and it was the custom at that time for the Pope to give the priests and deacons of Rome a monetary present two or three times a year at Easter, at Christmas, and other special occasions like the anniversary of an election or things like that. And Adrian's generosity and love of the poor was so well known that the day he received his gift from Pope Sergius, he discovered on returning to his parish that the poor had all gathered around knowing, oh, he's coming back with money and he can't resist giving it away. When Adrian saw the poor there waiting for him, He shouted out, what is money compared with having so many brothers? And he proceeded with another cleric to give away everything that he had received. He gave three coins to each person who came and soon everyone had their share, leaving only three coins each for himself and for his fellow cleric. Adrian was so humble and holy that twice before the people of Rome had wanted to elect him Pope, but he begged them not to. So yes, he's that Adrian we've met before. They came to his church. They said, we want to elect you Pope. He said, no, 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 Please, please find someone else. But now he's finally going to get elected. In 867, the people turned to Adrian as a compromise candidate between the rival factions in Rome. He was elderly. He was holy. He was conciliatory to a fault and well-respected and acceptable to everyone. Upon his election, the Roman people rushed upon the imperial officials, demanding that he be consecrated right away. But unfortunately, factionalism and division in the church was clearly present. Apparently, upon the death of Nicholas, there were all sorts of rumors circulating. There pro-Nicholas, anti-Nicholas. Those punished by Nicholas were going to get reprieved. Some people thought that Adrian was in the anti-Nicholas faction because he had kept some of them around his court. Others thought he was in the pro-Nicholas faction. In order to try and diffuse this divisiveness, Horace Mann tells us about a story that Adrian hosted a dinner for a large number of visitors from all over Christianity in which he waited on all his guests and sat with them in a humble place at the table. Then at the end of the dinner, he prostrated himself on the ground and asked them all to pray for him, that he have the strength to govern the church and to pray for Nicholas, his predecessor, whose example he was trying to follow. So it showed that he was trying to really bring all the factions together. Divisiveness continued, however. Right after his election, Lambert, the Duke of Spoleto, sent an army into Rome and basically conquered it. We really don't know why he did so. We are going to have a lot of problems with the Dukes of Spoleto wanting to control Rome in future episodes, but it seems to have just been a raw power grab. Adrian complained to the emperor and excommunicated Lambert, but the situation was a little unresolved. Spoleto's right next to Rome, and so a duke with a powerful army sitting right on the borders of Rome is almost always going to be a threat. Another story along these lines is even crazier. A couple of episodes ago, we met Arsenius, the bishop of Orte, who wanted his son Anastasius to become pope. We heard all about him, Anastasius Biblicarius, the, the papal librarian. In the end, Arsenius made him the anti-pope. Now, Arsenius fell out of favor for good reasons during subsequent papacies, and he began to really associate himself with the imperial faction in order to gain some power and some influence. Well, now that Nicholas is dead, Arsenius and his family decide to flex their muscles and come out of the woodwork a little bit. Arsenius's son or nephew, I've seen both written down in the histories, named Eleutherius, decided that he should marry the pope's daughter. Now, she was already engaged to another man and didn't really want to marry Eleutherius, but in his arrogance, Eleutherius didn't think that mattered. So on March 10th, 868, he abducted the Pope's daughter and the Pope's former wife, Stephania, and forced his daughter to marry him. Arsenius attempted to get the Empress on his side to protect Eleutherius and give him some political cover, but while he was on his way to do so, Arsenius died suddenly, so no one was there to back up Eleutherius. Eleutherius found himself not only on the wrong side of the Pope, but without a powerful relative to back him. And so the imperial forces came to arrest him because he had kidnapped someone. So he decided that he had no choice but to murder Adrian's wife and daughter. He was arrested, put on trial, and sentenced to death. Anastasius, the former anti-pope and the librarian at the Vatican, was put on trial as well. And it seems like he had urged his cousin Eleutherius to do the deed, to go and kidnap this daughter of the pope. And he was excommunicated as well. However, he seems to have cleared himself or at least politically put himself back in power because later on he's going to be sent by Pope Adrian to Constantinople on a diplomatic mission. Anastasius was clearly in imperial favor and he might have been reinstated because Adrian was worried about upsetting the emperor or upsetting the balance of power and the divisiveness of all the factions in Rome. Regardless, what a tragedy at the start of his pontificate. His wife and daughter are murdered. And unfortunately, as we move on into the 9th and 10th centuries, we're going to be hearing more stories like this. Now, the relationship with the imperial family and the conciliatory policy of Anastasius is going to cause more problems down the road as well. Remember last week that Nicholas had stood firm against Lothair's divorcing of his wife and taking a new mistress. While Adrian desiring to compromise seems to have signaled that he was a little bit more open to Lothair's point of view, he asked the advocates of Lothair to come to Rome in 868 and argue his case and he celebrated a mass and gave communion to Lothair that same year warning Lothair however that if he received while still living with his concubine it would be a grievous sin and then he called a synod in Rome to debate the issue and it seemed like he was leaning more on the side of Lothair and annulling this previous marriage but at the synod he w- he discovered that all the rest of the bishops were really against him And they were led by that outgoing Archbishop Formosus, who we met last week. Formosus apparently gave a rousing speech, which brought everyone onto the side of holding firm and denying Lothair a divorce. And when Lothair returned from Italy to France, however, the question became moot because he he died along his way. And this then thrust Adrian into a new set of issues with various contenders for the imperial throne, especially Louis II, who was based out of Italy and he desired Adrian to point out who should succeed Lothair in his kingdom. Now you really need a map and a big family tree to figure this all out, but Charles the Bald, who was the ruler of France at the time, had himself crowned king of all of Lothair's kingdom. But Louis II and the Pope weren't happy about this, so the Pope at Louis's request sent a lot of letters to Charles and other Frankish bishops. And in the end, Lothair's kingdom got divided between Charles the Bald and Louis the German, who's a different Louis. Louis II didn't get any of what he wanted. Okay, enough with that. Enough with the complicated Carolingian drama. You can never keep them all straight. I can't. Let's turn back to an equally complicated drama with the East and the ongoing Phocian schism. When Nicholas died, a council in Rome had condemned the Patriarch of Constantinople, Phocius, who had himself excommunicated the Pope. And this all started, if you remember, because the legitimate Patriarch of Constantinople, Ignatius, had been deposed, and Phocius, a layman, had been put in his place. Again, if you remember from last time, the emperor who had done this, Michael III, had just been killed by his assistant emperor, Basil the Macedonian. And Basil, in turn, deposed Phocis and reinstated Ignatius on November 23rd, 867. And he began to make overtures to Rome to try and reestablish communion and eventually to hold an ecumenical council to solve the problem once and for all. When word got to Adrian, he convened a synod in Rome in June, which proclaimed that Phocius was deposed for good, and his clerics should likewise be deposed, and that there could be some amnesty for those who took Phocius' side if they repented. Adrian likewise chose three legates to go to Constantinople to represent him at the proposed council. Now, the council met in Constantinople from October 5, 869 to February 28, 870, and they officially anathematized and deposed Phocius. But the Council also condemned the usurpation of church authority by secular authorities. One of the canons of the council states, No secular authority shall treat disrespectfully or seek to depose any of the five patriarchs. Rather are they to be highly honored, especially the Pope of Old Rome, than the Patriarchs of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, nor shall anyone direct against the Pope of Old Rome any libelous or and defamatory writings, as was done recently by Phocius and earlier by Dioscorus. If a secular authority shall attempt to expel the Pope or any of the other patriarchs, let him be anathema. And if an ambiguity or controversy concerning the Holy Church of the Romans be brought before a general council, the question should be examined and disposed of with becoming respect and reverence, and no sentence shall be boldly pronounced against the Supreme Pontiff of the Elder Rome. This council, the fourth council of Constantinople, goes down in history as our eighth ecumenical council and was broadly accepted by Adrian II and the church in the west and the east. But unfortunately, the teachings it promulgated aren't really going to last long because Basil was using the church for his own political purposes. And as soon as the situation changed and he didn't need the support of the west, he changed too. But more on that later. Now, at the end of the Fourth Council of Constantinople, Legates arrived in Constantinople from Boris of Bulgaria, who we met last week. He wanted our friend Formosus to be the head of the Bulgarian church, but because he was already a bishop of a different diocese, Adrian said no. After a lot of negotiating, Boris decided to turn back to the east and sent his messengers to the council asking the Patriarch of Constantinople to appoint a metropolitan for the Bulgarian church. This Ignatius agreed to do, despite the protests of the Roman legates present, and he ordained an archbishop and several bishops for the Bulgarians. Adrian protested, but his heart really wasn't in it, and the Bulgarians remained Orthodox, rather than Roman, to this very day. Now, along with this Bulgarian setback... We also have to talk about other missionaries to the Eastern Slavic peoples. Cyril and Methodius were in Rome around the time of Adrian's election, and he permitted their use of Church Slavonic rather than Latin in the liturgy, which was a big deal. Cyril died in Rome during this visit on February 14th, 869, which is why February 14th is the feast day of St. Cyril Methodius, and he was buried in the Basilica of St. Clement. But Methodius was consecrated bishop and sent back into the mission fields in Moravia, which remained fairly well connected with Rome. But unfortunately, when Methodius returned to Moravia, he found that the Germans had really moved in and taken over. Louis the German captured Methodius and put him in prison for ostensibly exercising his episcopal authority unjustly, but really it was a naked power grab on behalf of the German Empire and the German Church. Again, here, Adrian's actual authority is limited by powerful rulers who took advantage of his weakness. One final note about sources, the Libra Pontificalis, which has been a pretty solid source for the last couple of popes, runs out partway through the pontificate of Adrian II. The author seems to have stopped and not picked it back up again. So for the pontificates following Adrian, we'll have a lot less documentary evidence from the time period. And this is all we can really say about this pontificate. But it foreshadows a little bit what's going to come. Adrian was a kind, humble, and holy man, but he lacked the political acumen and the willpower of his great predecessor, Nicholas, and more and more the papacy is going to become subservient and a tool of the various secular political actors surrounding it. But for now, we have a holy man trying his best in a gradually darkening Europe. Adrian II died either in November or December of 872. His epitaph read in part, Kind and tender was he, generous to all and renowned throughout the world. Do you, reader, tearfully pray to God that he may live with his Lord beyond the stars. Adrian II was buried in the sacristy vestibule of St. Peter's Basilica and was succeeded by John VIII, and we will discuss his papacy next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com. You can find our other podcasts there, or you can find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.